Chapter 19 of Football Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Calm Dragon. Football Days by William Edwards. Chapter 19 Men Who Coached. Part A. The picture on the opposite page will recall to mind many a serious moment in the career of men who coached, when something had gone wrong, when some player had not come up to expectation, when a combination of poor judgment and ill luck was threatening to throw away the results of a season's work. Such scenes are never photographed, but they are preserved no less indelibly in the minds of all who have played this role. Where is the old football player who, gazing at this picture, will not be carried back to those days that will never come again? Hours when you listened, perhaps guiltily, to the stinging words of the coach. Moments when, spurred on by the thunder and lightning of his wrath, you could hardly wait to get out upon the field to grapple with your opponents. At such times, all that was worth while seemed to surge up within you fiercely demanding a chance, while if you were a coach you yearned to get into the game, only to realize as the team trotted out on the field that yours was no longer a playing part. All you could expect henceforth would be to walk nervously up and down the sideline with chills and thrills alternating along your spine. There were no coaches in the old days, Football history relates that in the beginning fellows who wanted fun and exercise would chip in and buy a leather cover for a beef bladder. It was necessary to have a supply of these bladders on hand, for stout kicks frequently burst them. In those days the ball was tossed up in the air and all hands rushed for it. There was no organization then, very few rules, and the football players developed themselves. Today the old-time player stands on the sidelines and hears the coach yelling, Play hard! Fall on the ball! Tackle low! Start quick! Charge hard and fast! As far as the fundamentals go, the game seems to him much the same, but when he begins to recollect, he sees how far it has really progressed. He recalls how the football coach became a reality and how a teacher of football appeared upon the gridiron. Better coaching systems were installed as football progressed. Rules were expanded, trainers crept in, intercollegiate games were scheduled, and competition and keen rivalry developed everywhere. In fact, the desire to win has become so firmly established in the minds of college men that we now have a finished product in our great American game of football. Wonderfully attractive, but very expensive. Competition has grown to such an extent that our coaching systems of today resemble, in a way, the plans for national preparedness, costly but apparently necessary. All this means that the American football man, like the American captain of industry, or the American pioneer in any fields of activity, is never content to stand still. His motto is, Ever Onward. It is not always the star player that makes the greatest coach. The mediocre man is quite likely to have absorbed as much football teaching ability as the star, and when his opportunity comes to coach, he sometimes gets more out of the men than the man with the big reputation. 
Personality counts in coaching. In addition to a coach's keen sense of football, there must be a strong personality around which the players may rally. All this inspires confidence. It is a joy for a coach to work with good material, the real foundation of success. The rules of today, however, give what, under old standards, was the weaker team a much broader opportunity for victory over physically larger and stronger opponents. But there are days, nevertheless, when every coach gets discouraged, times when there is no response from the men he is coaching, when their slowness of mind and body seem to justify the despair of Charlie Daly, who said to his team, You fellers are made of crockery from the neck down and ivory from the neck up. Football is fickle. Today you may be a hero. After the last game you may be carried off on the shoulders of enthusiastic admirers and dined and wined by hosts of friends. But across the field there is a grim-faced coach who may already be scheming out a play for next year which will snatch you back from the Hall of Fame and make your friends describe you sadly as a back number. Houghton arrived at Harvard at the psychological moment. Harvard had passed through many distressing years playing for the football supremacy. He found something to build upon because, although the game at Cambridge was in the doldrums, there had been keen and capable coaching in the past. Prominent among those who have worked hard for Harvard and whose work has been more than welcome are Arthur Cumnock, that brilliant end rush, George Stewart, Dr. William A. Brooks, a former Harvard captain, Lewis Upton, John Cranston, Delland, Hollowell, Thatcher, Forbes, Waters, Newell, Dibley, Bill Reed, Mike Farley, Josh Crane, Charlie Daly, Pot Graves, Leo Leary, and others well versed in the game of football. Hutton had had some experience not only in coaching at Cambridge, but coaching at Cornell and the Harvard football authorities realized that of all the Harvard graduates, Houghton would probably be the best man to turn the tide in Harvard football. Percy, who played tackle on a winning Crimson eleven, and Sam Felton will be well remembered as the fastest punters of their day. The first Harvard team coached by Houghton defeated Yale. It was in 1908 when Houghton used a spectacular method when he rushed Vic Kennard into the Crimson backfield after Ver Weeb had brought the ball up the field, where Houghton's craft sent Vic Kennard in to make the winning three points, and Kennard himself will tell the story of that game. The next year Percy Houghton's team could not defeat the great Ted Coy, who kicked two goals from the field. The performance of Harvard 1908 team was the more remarkable because Burr, who was the captain and the next great punter at that time, had been injured and the team was without his services, how well I remember him on the sidelines keenly following the play, but brilliant in his self-denial. There have been times when victories did not come to Harvard with the regularity that they have under the Houghton regime, but the scales go up and down year by year, game by game, and from defeats we learn much. Let us read what this premier coach said upon reflection. Surely the game of football brings out the best there is in one, Aside from the mental and physical exercise, the game develops that inestimable quality of doing one's best under pressure. 
What better training for the game of life than the acid test of a championship game? Such a test comes not alone to the player, but to the coach as well. What truer and finer friends can one have than those whom we have met through the medium of football? And finally, as the years tend to narrow this precious list through death, what greater privilege than to associate with the fellow whose muscles are lithe and whose mind is clean? Such a man was Francis H. Burr, captain of the Harvard team in 1908. Words fail me to express my sincere regard for that gallant leader. His spirit still lives at Cambridge. His type we miss. I am proud of the men who work shoulder to shoulder in bringing about Harvard victories. The list is a long one. I shall always cherish the hearty cooperation of these men who gave their best for Harvard. It was Al Sharp, that great Cornell coach, who in the fall of 1915 found it possible to break through the Harvard line of victories, and hanging on the walls in the trophy room at Cornell University is a much-prized souvenir of Cornell's visit to Cambridge. That was the only defeat on the Harvard schedule. But sometimes defeat have to come to ensure victory, and perhaps in that defeat by Cornell lay the reason for the overwhelming score against Yale. Slowly but surely, Al Sharp has won his way into the front ranks of football coaches. Working steadfastly, year after year, he has built up and established a system that has set Cornell's football machinery upon a firm foundation. Glenn Warner Glenn Warner has contributed a great deal to football both as a player and coach. Warner was one of the greatest linemen that ever played on the Cornell team. After leaving college, he began his coaching career in 1895 at the University of Georgia. His success there was remarkable. It attracted so much attention that he was called back to Cornell in 1897 and 1898. In 1899, Warner moved again and began his historic work at the Carlisle Indian School turning out a team year after year that gave the big colleges a close battle and sometimes beat them. There never was a team that attracted so much attention as the Carlisle Indians. They were popular everywhere and drew large crowds, not only on the account of their being redmen, but on account of their adaptability to the game. Warner, as their coach, wrought wonders with them, and really all the colleges at one time or another had their scalps taken by the Indians. They were the champion travelers of the game. Their games were generally all away from home, and yet the long trips did not seem to hamper them in their play. They got enjoyment out of traveling. Going from Princeton to New York one Friday night some years ago, I was told by the conductor that the Carlisle football team was in the last car. I went back and talked with Warner. The Indian team were amusing themselves in one end of the car, and thus passing the time away by entering into a game they were accustomed to play on trips. One of the Carlisle players would stand in the center of the aisle, and some fifteen or so men would group about him, in and about and on top of the seats. The central figure would bend over and close his eyes. Then someone from the crowd would reach over and spank the crouching Indian a terrific blow, hastily drawing back his hand. Then the Indian who had received the blow would straighten up and try by the expression of guilt on the face of the one who had delivered the blow, to find his man. Their faces were a study, yet nearly every time the right man was detected. 
Who is there in football who will never forget the Indian team, their red blankets and all that was typical of them, the yells that the crowds gave as the Indians appeared? They seemed always to be fit. They were full of spirit and anxious to clash with their opponents. I recall an incident in a Princeton-Carlisle game when the game was being fiercely waged. Miller, the great Indian halfback, had scored a touchdown after a long run. It was not long after this that a Princeton player was injured. Maybe the play was being slowed up a little. Anyway, time was taken out. One of the Indians seemed to sense the situation. The Princeton players were lying on the ground while the Carlisle men were prancing about eager to resume the fray. When one of the Indians remarked, White men play for wind, Indian play football. In 1915, Warner went to the University of Pittsburgh. Here he has already begun to duplicate former successes. Cruikshank, Peck, and Wagner are three of Pittsburgh's many stars. Probably the best football player that Warner ever developed at the Carlisle Indian School was Jim Thorpe, whose picture appears on the opposite page. Unhappy the end, and not infrequently the back, who had to face this versatile player. Thorpe was a raider. Billy Bull Billy Bull of Yale is one of the old heroes who has kept in very close touch with the game. He has been a valuable coach at Yale, and the Ellis kicking game is left entirely in his hands. He is an enthusiastic believer in the game. Immediately after leaving New Haven in 1889, he started to coach, and since that time he has not missed a year. Years ago he inaugurated a routine system of coaching for the various styles of kicks. My object, he said recently, has been to turn out consistent rather than wonderful kickers. As a player, I was early impressed with the value of kicking, not only in a general way, but also in a particular way, such as the punt, in an offensive way. For more than twenty-five years I have talked it up. For a long time I talked it to deaf ears, especially at Yale. I talked it when I coached at West Point for ten years and was generally set down as a harmless crank on the subject. But I have lived to see the time when everyone agrees on the great value of this offensive kick. When I entered Yale I was an absolute greenhorn, but the greenhorn had a chance then, for he was able to play an actual scrimmage every day. Now the squads are so big that opportunities for playing the game for long daily periods are entirely wanting. Today it is a case of a heap big talk, a coach for every position, more talk, lots of system, blackboard exercises, and mighty little actual play. I have often wondered if things were not being overdone as far as coaching goes in the preparatory schools at the present time. The superabundance of coaches and the demand for victory combined to force the boy. If there is anyone forcing to do, the college is the place for it, when the boy is older and better able to stand the strain. In recent years I have seen not a few broken-down boys enter college. Boys are coming to college now whose needs must be told everything, and if there is not a large body of coaches about to tell them, they mutiny. They seem to forget, or not to know, that most is up to the man himself. When a boy comes to college with the idea that all this is necessary is for him to be told, constantly told how to do this and that, and he will deliver in the last ditch, 
I cannot help thinking that something is wrong. I have in mind right now a player in the line who came to college after four years of school football. Ever since his entry he has complained that no one has told him anything. Now this particular player spends ten months of each year loafing, and expecting his two months of football to do a man's job in a big game. No amount of blackboard and other talk is going to make a player do a man's job and whip his opponent. No man can play a tackle job properly if he does not realize the kind of proposition he is up against twelve months in the year and act accordingly. He has got to do his own thinking and see to it himself that he has the necessary strength and toughness to play the game as one must to win. Sanford the Unique George Foster Sanford is unique in football. He made splendid teams when he coached at Columbia, while his subsequent record with the Rutgers eleven attracted wide attention. In the Columbia Alumni News of October 1915, Albert W. Putman, a former player, reviews seven years of Morningside football and pays the following tribute to Foster Sanford. Sanford coached the teams of 1899, 1900, and 1901. He coached them ably, conscientiously, and thoroughly, and in my opinion was the best football coach in the country. During my three years' experience as coach at Columbia, says Sanford, we beat all the big teams except Harvard. I was fortunate enough to develop such men as Weeks, Morley, Wright, and Berrien, players whose records will always stand high in the Hall of Football fame at Columbia. I was particularly well satisfied with the work I got out of Slokovich, a former Yale player whom the Yale coaches had never seemed to handle properly. I did not allow him to play over one day a week. This was because I had discovered that he was very healthy-muscled, that if he played continuously he would become muscle-bound. My treatment proved to fit the case exactly, and Slokovich became a star in for Columbia. We defeated Yale the first year. The next year at New Haven the contest was a strenuous one, and the game attracted unusual attention. It was in my own home town, and I had to stand for a lot of good-natured kidding, but those who were there will remember how scared the Yale coaches got during the last part of the game, when Columbia made terrific advances. How Columbia's team fought Gordon Brown's eleven almost to a standstill that day is something that the Yale coaches of that time will long remember. An old Yale player, Bob Laurie, whose father is a trustee of Rutgers, induced Sanford to lend the college his assistance. Apparently this connection was an unmixed blessing. Mr. L. F. Laurie, Bob's father, says Sandy, has frankly admitted that, in his opinion, Sanford's gift to the college, for he works without remuneration, has brought a spirit and betterment of conditions which is worth fully as much as donations of thousands of dollars. From the first day I went there, continues Sandy, I started to build up football for Rutgers and to rely on Rutgers men for my assistance. It was there that I met the best football men I ever coached, John T. Tuohy. This remarkable tackle weighed 220 pounds. The life he led and the example he set will always have a lasting influence upon Rutgers' men. For, sad to relate, Tui was killed in the railroad yards at Oneonta, where he was yardmaster. Tui was a great leader, 
possessing a wonderful personality, and winning the immediate respect of everyone who knew him. Twenty-five years have passed since I saw Sanford that morning in the Fifth Avenue Hotel. Since then I have followed his football career with enthusiasm. Boyhood heroes live long in mind. He is what might be called a major surgeon in football, for it is matter of record that he has been called back to Yale, not when the patient was merely sick, but in a serious condition. Usually the operation has been performed with such skill that the patient has rallied with disconcerting suddenness. Talking to the Yale teams between the halves, giving instructions, which have turned dubious prospects into flaming victories, is a service which Sanford has rendered Yale more than once. Victory, as it happens, is the principal characteristic of Sanford's work. Long is the list of players whom Sanford has developed. In my coaching experience, Sandy tells us, I doubt if I ever coached a man where my hard work counted for more at Yale than the case of Charlie Chadwick in 1897. For many years there has been a saying that a one-man defense is as good as eleven-man defense, providing you can get one man who can do it. Of course, this never worked out, literally, but the case of Charlie Chadwick is probably the best explanation of its value. Besides being overdeveloped, he was temperamental. At times he would show great form, and at other times his playing was hopeless. This year I was asked to come to New Haven and began coaching the linemen. Chadwood looked good to me, in spite of much criticism that was made by the coaches. In their opinion, they thought he was not to be relied upon. So I decided to stake my reputation, and began in my own way, feeling sure that I could get results in preparing him for the Harvard and Princeton games. I started out purposely annoying Chadwick in every possible way, going with him wherever he went. I went with him to his room evenings and did not leave until he had become so bored that he fell asleep, or that he got mad and told me to get out. I planned it that Chadwick approached the coaches whenever he saw them together and say, I wish you would let me play on this team, if you will, I will play the game of my life. I will play like hell. After he made this speech two or three times, they were very positive that he was more than temperamental. I kept steadily at my plan, however, and felt sure it would work out. The line was finally turned over to me, and I had opportunity to slip Chadwick in for two or three plays at left guard. He played like a demon. He was literally a one-man defense but he received no credit. I immediately removed him from the game and criticized him severely and told him to follow up the play, and in case I needed him, he would be handy. I realized what a great player he was proving to be, and my great problem then was how I was to convince the coaches that Chadwick should start the game. I tried it out a few times, but saw it was useless trying to convince them, so I decided to concentrate on Jim Rogers, the captain. Jim consented. My plan was to tell no one except Marshall, the man who placed Chadwick was to take. The lineup was called out in the dressing room before the game. Chadwick's name was not included. I had arranged with Julian Curtis, who was in close touch with the cheerleaders, that when I gave the signal, the Yale crowd would be instructed to stand and yell nothing but, Chadwick! 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 The Yale team ran out upon the field. 
I stayed behind with Chadwick and came in through the gate holding him by the arm. Before going on the sidelines, I stopped him and said, Look here, Chadwick, it doesn't look as though you're going to play, but if I put you in that lineup, how will you play? Like a shot from a cannon, he roared, I'll play like hell. You could have heard him a mile. Well, then, give me your sweater and warm up, I said. As I gave the signal to Julian Curtis, he passed the word on to the cheerleaders, and the sight of Chadwick running up and down those sidelines will never be forgotten. It is estimated that he leaped five yards at a stride, and when the students cheering, Chadwick, 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 he was sent out into the lineup, and the rest, well, you better ask the men who played on the Harvard team that day. It was a stream of men going on and off the field, and they were headed for right guard position on the Harvard side. Harvard could not beat Chadwick, so the game ended in a tie. Jim Rogers, captain of that team, also had something to say of Chadwick. In the Harvard-Yale game, Rogers writes, Charlie Chadwick played the game of his life. He used up about six men who played against him that day, but he never could put out Bill Edwards the day we played Princeton. I played against Chadwick on the scrub, and the first charge he made against me I went clean back to fullback. It was just as though an automobile had hit me. I played against Hefflinger and a lot of them. I could hold those fellows. Gee, but I was sore, I said to myself, and won't do that again, and the next time I was set back just as far. One feature of this Yale-Princeton game impressed me tremendously, that of Bill Edwards' stand against what I considered a superman, Charles Chadwick. Before the game, I had confidently expected Big Bill to resign after about five minutes' play, knowing, as I did, how Chadwick was going. In this, however, Edwards was a great disappointment, as he struck the game out and was stronger at the end than at the start or halfway through. Had he weakened at all, Ad Kelly's great offensive work would have been doomed to failure. Edwards finished up the game against Chadwick with a face that resembled a raw beefsteak. To my mind, he was the worst punished man I have ever seen. He stood by his guns to the finish, and ever since then my hat has been off to him. One of the most interesting characters in Southern football is W. R. Tichenor. A thorough enthusiast in the game, and known wherever there is a football in the South. His father was president of the Alabama Polytechnic. He was a fine player and weighed about 120 pounds. He is the emergency football man of the South. Whenever there is a football dispute, Titchener settles it. Whenever a coach is taken sick, Titchener is called upon to take his place. Whenever an emergency official is needed, Titch comes to the rescue. He tells the following story. Every boy who has been to Auburn in the last twenty years knows Bob Fraser. Many of them, however, may not recognize that name, as he has been called Bob Sponsor for so long that few of them know his real name. Bob is as black as the inside of a coal mine, and has rubbed and worked for the various teams at Auburn since the memory of a man runneth not to the contrary. Just after the Christmas holidays one year in the middle of nineties, Bob, with the view of making a touch, called at Bill Williams' room one night. After asking Bill if he had had a good Christmas, Sponsor remarked, You know, Mr. Williams, us Auburn niggers went down and played dem Tuskegee niggers a game of football during Christmas. 
"'Who did you have on the team, Bob?' inquired Bill. "'Oh, we had a lot of these niggers round town year. "'There was me and Krusky and Homer and Bear and Cockeye "'and a lot of these year town niggers.' "'How did you come out?' asked Bill. "'Oh, dem Tuskety niggers give us a good lickin'. "'What position did you play?' "'Me?' said Bob. "'I was de captain. I played all round.' I played center, then I played quarterback, then I played halfback. What system of signals did you use and who called them? was Bill's next inquiry. Ain't I told you, Mr. Williams? I was de captain. I called the signals. Them niggers of mine couldn't learn no signals, so we just played like we had em. I'd give some numbers to fool the Tuskegee niggers, but them numbers didn't mean nothing. I'd say two, four, six, eight, ten. Take that ball, Homer, and go round the end. That's the only sort of signals dem niggers could learn, and sometimes they missed them. That's the reason we got beat, and dem Tuskegee niggers got all my money. Mr. Williams, I'm just as Nicholas as a haunt. Can't you lend me two bits till Saturday night? Please, sir? Honest to God, I'll pay you back then, sure. End of the first half of chapter 19. Recording by calmdragon.net